We are up to mitzvah number 124. And again, we are following the mitzvahs sequentially as they appear in the Torah. And now we're in the beginning of the book of Leviticus. So there are a lot of laws relating to sacrifices. And mitzvah number 124 relates to a bird sacrifice. So in the previous mitzvah, we talked about how there are variable sin sacrifices, for example, if someone's really rich, they bring an animal. If someone's kind of middle class, they bring a, a bird. And if someone is impoverished, really poor, they would bring a meal offering. But there is instances where a bird sacrifice is offered. And specifically, this mitzvah relates to a bird sin sacrifice, not a bird elevation sacrifice. That's the context. Now, we know that if you want to eat an animal – and this is true across the board, you want to eat an animal, the animal has to be dead. One of the seven Noahide laws is not to eat meat from a living animal. So the animal has to be dead. Now, for it to be kosher, it has to be slaughtered and processed in a very specific way. It's got to follow the kosher protocol. So if you want to eat an animal, which 94% of Americans do with regularity, you have to kill it. You have to slaughter it. Similarly, if you want to sacrifice an animal, be it a bird or a larger animal, you would need to slaughter it. So in the temple, part of the process of how you take a sacrifice and you offer it on the altar is you have to take a knife. I hate to say it. You have to take a knife, a really, really sharp one, and you have to kill the animal. That's the way sacrifices are done typically. Now, I've never seen this myself, not... A sacrifice, not even slaughtering an animal. I'm a little bit queasy, as you know, and this is not really for the faint of heart. But every kosher piece of meat and fowl is processed like that even today. And in temple times, please God will get to merit witnessing that in our lifetimes. You have a sacrifice. A sacrifice has to be slaughtered before it can be elevated. Now, thankfully, there are people out there with different dispositions and tolerance for these kinds of things, and they do it. This mitzvah relates to a bird sacrifice, specifically a bird sin sacrifice, and how it is slaughtered. Typically, again, you would take a knife, and you would take the knife, and you would cut from the throat, and you would sever the vital signs there are two vital signs, the, the I think it's the trachea and the esophagus. You sever that, the animal's dead. It can be eaten in a kosher fashion. It can be offered as a sacrifice. However, a bird sacrifice is done differently. You don't use a knife. Instead, the kohen typically has a long fingernail, and the fingernail is used to sever those signs. Moreover, it's not done from the throat, it's done from the back of the neck. And this mitzvah, mitzvah number 124, relates to the processing of a sin sacrifice of the bird variety. And the mitzvah tells us that the way it's done is that you cannot decapitate the animal, you can't remove the head, you have to leave some skin and some flesh when you do this process called melika, the slaughtering of a bird sacrifice. How this is done, the Kohen has a long fingernail, takes it from the nape of uh, of, uh, of the bird, penetrates the bone, 
and severs the sign, but does not decapitate the bird. Now, there are two signs. You need, ideally, to cut them both. If you cut only one, the Sefer Chinuch tells us, even the majority of one, that will be sufficient. And this is the process of slaughtering birds for sacrificial purposes. And with respect to a sin bird sacrifice, you have to leave some flesh and some skin, but if you sever the head completely, it would render the offering invalid. Now, incidentally, for a bird Ola offering, a bird elevation offering, the head, in fact, must be severed, but that's not this mitzvah. This is mitzvah relating to a sin bird sacrifice. Now, it's interesting. If you wanted to eat chicken and you want to follow the rules, you want it to be kosher, and you grow out your nail and you use this process, that animal's not kosher. This is a process that's only done in the temple for bird sacrifices. Now, some bird sacrifices, the kohanim are allowed to eat part of it. So they're allowed to eat this meat, the parts that are allocated, that are designated for the kohanim. But in other contexts, outside of the sacrificial context, this animal would not be kosher because the only way you make an animal kosher outside of a sacrificial context is only with a knife and to the throat. Thus, if you have, let's say, a non-Kohen, so an ordinary Israelite, and they consume from the bird sacrifice meat, they would be violating two prohibitions. A, the prohibition against them eating that meat because it's sacrificial. B, it's not kosher. It's only kosher in the right context, namely in a sacrificial context and a Kohen who's allowed to eat those meats as provisioned for by the Torah. This is the mitzvah, mitzvah number 124. Now, the Sefer Chinuch has a very interesting piece to try to give some rationale for this mitzvah. We know every mitzvah, the Sefer Chinuch, but the way we're using to navigate through the Sitchin 13 mitzvahs. And every mitzvah tries to offer some sort of reason, some sort of rationale that we can understand as to why or what the benefit is, what the lesson is in this mitzvah. And I think with regards to sacrifices, given that we have never seen it, we've never participated in it, we, of course, recognize it's one of the 613 mitzvahs, but I think it's extra important to try to gain some sort of understanding to have a little bit of a connection with this mitzvah uh, and thus, I think it's even more important, perhaps, when there are myths that we cannot fulfill, to really study them and see what lessons there are for us. And the Sefer Chinuch says something very fascinating. So he prefaces it by saying that when we talk about sacrifices, you know, there are the generalities of the sacrifices, and then there are the details. And this is a detail. And we don't profess to know the reasons behind all the details of the sacrifices. And therefore, the way a bird sin sacrifice is offered, the way it's slaughtered, it's a detail and it's really above us. We don't know the actual reason. Nevertheless, he offers a fantastic idea. And again, he's not suggesting that this is the reason, but it's a lesson that can be very much applicable to us. He notes that the kind of person that brings a bird sacrifice 
It's not a wealthy person. It's a pauper's sacrifice. The rich person, they would bring a more expensive sacrifice. So we have a law that tells us that the way you process a poor person's sacrifice is a little bit different than the way you would process a more wealthy person's sacrifice. And perhaps, says the Sefer Chinuch, perhaps this is hinting at the imperative to be speedy, to be expeditious, to be alacritous in processing the sacrifice of a pauper. You don't need to find a knife. You don't need to inspect the knife. You have the implement on your finger. The pauper, says the Sefer Chinuch, they could be an hourly worker. And if you're looking around for a knife and it's taking you a long time, they're going to lose money. They're going to sit around waiting for you. And therefore, you try to make it fast. And you don't use a knife. Oh, and you don't even flip it around on its back. The way you would naturally hold the bird, that's the way you can actually sacrifice it. And that's why you go from the back of the neck, or this is one reason perhaps why you would go from the back of the neck and not from the throat. Fascinating idea. We tend you know, to treat the, the rich, the powerful, the important, the prestigious. Those people are important. But the paupers, the people we tend to overlook, eh, they can wait. They could wait. If you have a question, well, who, who are we going to deal with here first? Who's more important? So, of course, our tendency is to say, well, someone's rich and powerful and, you know, they have a lot of connections and they go right away to the front of the line. The paupers, the people that are less successful, they can wait. Says the Sefer Chinuch. In this mitzvah, which, again, <laughs> we wouldn't connect these two ideas, but in this mitzvah, we learn a very important lesson. The way of the Torah is, if you have a poor person, the person is less privileged, you have to be even faster for them. They shouldn't have to wait. And then he adds another idea, a totally different level. And the birds are typically doves. I mentioned a chicken earlier. Chickens are never offered as sacrifices. And the reason is, our sages tell us, it's because the chickens, they're always running around, they're always eating, and they may be going into the neighbor's yard and eating some of their food. And therefore, the, the chicken, it has a tendency to steal, and that's not something you bring to the temple. Doves, pigeons, things like that, they are sacrifices. Now, the Sefer notes that in many places in Jewish literature, the Jewish nation are compared to doves. The Talmud tells us that a dove has a very interesting characteristic, and that is that it has one mate per lifetime. And if its mate dies, it never again is with a different bird. And that is symbolic of the Jewish nation. We have fidelity to our mate, so to speak, we have fidelity to God. And yes, there are some 
other forces that are at play and we're not always living in our most idealized fashion. But on a principle level, there's something about our nation that is inseparably committed to our Creator, like a dove. And there are many verses in Scripture to indicate that. But we do have a penchant for being stubborn. We're stubborn sometimes. And it really takes a lot to get us to change. And sometimes we can cling to bad things longer than other people. And the way this is described in the Torah is we are a stiff-necked people. Am kishay oref. We have a stiff neck. So what do we have over here? You bring a bird sacrifice, you take a dove, and you bring it to the temple. And what do you do? You go to the neck, and you crack the neck. And that is supposed to symbolize that our nation were a dove, but sometimes the neck needs to be cracked a little bit. And that's one of the lessons, one of the takeaways, says the Sefer Chinuch, of this mitzvah, the dove and the, and the pigeon, birds that are compared to Jewish people. We have wonderful qualities. We also have some shortcomings. And our objective, our national mission, is to overcome those shortcomings. We have a stiff neck. We have to overcome that. Now, this mitzvah particularly relates to the fact that once you finish this process, once the Kohen takes the fingernail and plunges it in and goes through the bone and severs those signs, he has to not go the full distance and not completely sever the head. Why is that? So again, the Sefer Chinuch offers a reason. He says that when you have a bird and you're holding it in two parts, you got the head in one hand and the body in the other hand, it doesn't look so good. It looks much better with the head attached, even if it's uh, not fully attached, even if it's uh, nearly headless. As long as it's still headful, it looks better. And maybe the reason why we have this requirement is because we are mandated to do whatever we can to beautify the sacrifice of the pauper. Think about it. The person is impoverished. He's suffering enough. He suffers enough from his poverty. Let's not take his poor, pathetic, pitiful sacrifice and make her look completely ridiculous. Don't exacerbate his circumstance that not only is he poor, he has to be the cheapest sacrifice, but it's also decapitated. Let's do what we can to allow them to maintain their dignity. It's bad enough that he can only bring a bird sacrifice. Don't worsen it by making the poor bird headless. Now, it's interesting that even though this myth relates to a bird sin sacrifice, there's also a context where a poor person would bring a bird ola elevation sacrifice. And the verse in chapter 1 of Leviticus tells us that when a pauper brings a bird elevation sacrifice and it's brought atop the altar, you don't remove its feathers. 
Why? So Rashi tells us something very fascinating. Rashi says, you know, if you smell burning feathers atop the altar, it's a very acrid odor. It's a very unpleasant effluvium. So why would you do that? What's this smell that we're trying to encourage? There is no one who smells that and isn't repulsed, Rashi tells us. Why would you not remove the feathers? Why? So Rashi quotes the Midrash, to make the sacrifice of the pauper appear more substantial. Don't think, oh, who does God love? God loves the rich and the powerful and the ones who have the ability and the financial wherewithal to bring more substantial sacrifices. But the pauper, the small pathetic sacrifice, eh, not so important. To counteract that false opinion, the bird is made to appear as big and impressive as possible, notwithstanding the unpleasant odor that it emits. Now, the Sefer Chinuch tells us that this idea is built upon the general principle that the entire reason why we have sacrifices is to enhance our character and our midos, our traits. We're here to acquire better character, to improve ourselves, to straighten our ways, to elevate ourselves. That's why we have sacrifices in general. But man is, is physical. And to teach a lesson to humanity, you have to do very striking actions. And only once they're so dramatic can you really appreciate the lessons that they contain. Can those ideas be conveyed and absorbed and hopefully adopted? So these are the reasons that he tells us. Two reasons. In general, A, to do what we can to allow the dignity of the pauper to be maintained. B, because the Jewish nation are compared to doves and we have a stiff neck and sometimes that has to be broken. And then he ends off and he says, well, until we have a better explanation, this is what we will stick with. So again, he, he searched for an explanation and he told us at the onset that, well, we don't really know, but this is a working hypothesis until we come up with something better. Now, in the laws section of the piece, in every piece he has the introduction, the general snapshot of the mitzvah, and then the reason, and then the laws or some sampling of laws. And then he connects it to uh, the applicability, you know, who, who can fulfill it, under what circumstances, etc., so it's a little bit hard to read because it's a, you know, for someone who's a little queasy, he does give a description of exactly how the bird is held, but he does tell us, which is, I found to be very interesting. He tells us that this is one of the most difficult things to do in the temple. The actual way of, you know, finding the signs and flipping the bird and holding the bird and positioning the bird and you know, using your, your thumbnail. It's one of the hardest things to do in the temple. And uh, I found that to be very interesting. He also adds that there is a, a very large space 
where this can be done location-wise in the temple. And he says this is another example of this idea that there's an imperative to speed things up. We don't want the poor person, when you think about it, you go to the DMV or the DPS, and you got to sit there and wait for a couple of hours. That's probably the way it was in the temple. I hate to say it. You know, there's hundreds of people bringing sacrifices every day. We want to speed things up for the pauper as much as we can. And therefore, there hasn't, you don't have to have a specific place in the temple where you have to go anywhere, really. There's a much larger place where this would be permitted. Now, there's an interesting custom today. I've seen it. It's not very common, but it does exist. Where Kohanim priests let their fingernails, specifically the one that you would use for Malika for this form of slaughtering of a bird, they let their nail grow. And the theory behind it is that, well, Messiah comes tomorrow, temple is built this week, who's going to bring those bird sacrifices? How do you expedite the, the growing of the, the nail? So therefore, in preparation for Messiah, there are some Kohanim that have a custom to not cut their nail on their thumb so that they are ready in the event that Messiah comes. Which is interesting. I did speak to my brother-in-law, who is a Kohen, and I asked him if he ever had that custom. He says, no, he's seen it, but they don't have that custom in their family. I want to share one story, you know, this mitzvah. It's really hard for us to relate to it. The whole idea of sacrifices in general are a mystery for us. And we find it to be a little bit, you know, outdated in uh, modern sensibilities. But certainly the rationale of the chinuch, of the sefer chinuch, this idea of the imperative to work feverishly on behalf of the poor, not allow them to wait, that's a very valuable lesson. And I heard an incredible story about one Moshe Reichman, if that name marines a bell, he was a very um, wealthy Jew who lived in Canada. He was a very big uh, real estate developer, uh, owned projects all over the world. He built Canary Wharf in uh, London. At one point, I think he was like one of the richest people in the entire world. But he was a very religious Jew. And he looked like a Rosh Hashiva. He had a very long beard. He looked like a real, he was a real scholar. But he was an incredibly generous person, a great visionary and builder, uh, Moshe Reichman. But you look at him, he didn't look like a, you know, like a mogul, like a business mogul. He didn't look like a billionaire, you know. He looked like a, like an old rabbi. So he was once waiting to meet a fellow developer, and the developer walks out, and he sees he sees Moshe Reichman waiting. Now, this is like, you know, one of the biggest real estate developers in the entire world, and he's waiting in the, the waiting room. So he tells the secretary, well, why are you allowing this man to sit and wait? He's got to come in right away. He wants to you gotta bring him in right away. So she says, well, you know, you're a, you're a wealthy guy. And sometimes all these rabbis come from Israel. They're trying to fundraise. They want to raise money by you. We don't want, you know, they can wait a little bit. They can wait a little bit. 
I thought that. I know who he was. See, a man with a with a big big beard. He looks like he's a, a rabbi. I assume he was here to fundraise from you. I said, "Hey, to wait." That's what she or he, the secretary, told this individual. And uh, Moshe Reichem says, "Wait, wait. That's how you treat poor people, needy people, people who are coming to fundraise to collect tzedakah from you. That's how you treat them. You make them wait. I'm out of here. I'm done doing business with you." It's a beautiful story, and uh, he was someone who really embodied that. You know, he was someone that not only was a very generous giver, but he elevated the status of the people that he encountered and the people that he helped. I think this is a very valuable lesson for us, even though this mitzvah, again, it's hard for us to really connect with it. We do hope to be able to witness it. Please, God, uh, the temple should be rebuilt. I'm able to see it. But this lesson of the Sefer HaChinuch, the importance and the imperative of not allowing the, the poor people, oh, let them wait, let them sit around and wait, that idea I think is a very powerful one, a very useful one for us to think about, to ponder, and to learn from. If you want to send me an email, of course, you know the email address. It's rabbiwalby at gmail.com. All questions, comments, and feedback are appreciated.